When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One ready. Oh, oh, hold on. You're listening to Football Philosophy and Rocket Science, a Cleveland Browns podcast, a show where a philosopher and a rocket scientist try to make sense of the Cleveland Browns. The Football Philosophy and Rocket Science podcast is a part of the Fanatical Elves Podcast Network, a part of the Fans First Sports Network. Here are your hosts, Elliot Kennel and Joel Cade. Hi, and welcome to Football Philosophy and Rocket Scientist. He is the left guard, Dr. Joel Cade, philosophy professor at the left guard. I'm the Village Elliot at TH Village Elliot. Together, we hope to offer unique perspectives on the hardest game in the universe, NFL football, and the strangest team to ever attempt to play at the Cleveland Browns. We do not claim to be the best analysts Uh, And we do not claim to represent the best team in football by any means, but we are absolutely unique. Joel really is a PhD in philosophy, and I really am a former Air Force specialist in space power and propulsion at beautiful Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, home of the deadliest fighting force in the world. Hoorah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about the unique martial arts mentality used by the Cleveland Browns under the leadership of offensive line coach and head martial arts guru, Bill Callahan. We'll also talk about whether the Browns are going to overhaul their entire offensive line concept to suit the skills of Deshaun Watson, and we're going to say a few words about the NFL draft. But first... We would like to respond to communications received from our amazing fans. Joel and I sent out thousands of notices about the show, and darned if we didn't get some responses from fans, including some famous ones. Let me uh, me start with the first one. The first one we got is from Johnny F. Football from College Station, Texas. And he writes, Hey, Joel and Elliot, thanks for the invite. Good luck with your new show. But no way would I ever appear on a show with two amateur clowns like you guys. But if you ever need insurance, look me up. Best regards, JFF. Gee, who does he think he is? That that doesn't sound really very uh, enthusiastic, does it? Uh, You know, I think this guy is a clown. Probably dresses up and goes to Vegas on the weekends so he doesn't get recognized. Can't show his face in public. Well, do you got another one that maybe is a little bit more positive? Oh, we do have another one. We have one from Elon from Boca Chica, Texas, and he writes, Dear Joel and Elliot, good luck on the launch of your new program. Only answered me this. Why does the Cleveland Browns constantly give draft picks to the Houston Texans and both teams are still so bad? Doesn't game theory predict this is impossible? Hmm. Well, that, that is a very interesting question. Um, you would think that with all the draft picks that the Browns are giving the Texans, that they should be able to at least 
you know, they should get like Mel Kuyper's draft guide and pick some decent draft picks. And I, I think actually, I believe that the Houston Texans will start to improve probably one or two years, even if they draft uh, badly in other areas. The number one draft picks should make them a better team. So I think I think this is like uh, like picking stocks, right? You could throw darts at a dartboard and do a better job of picking stocks than than following an analyst. So I don't know. We'll see. They just got to throw their darts on the dartboard and see if they find somebody. I, I think it's hard to mess up the first round. Although I'll give them give them the opportunity, man. Don't 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 speak too early. The Cleveland Browns actually did mess up consistently in the first round for about, I don't know, seven seven years in a row. It was pretty amazing. And that, that 2014 draft takes the cake. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, that was... <laughs> well, in case it, you guys aren't aware of the 2014 draft, this is the infamous Johnny Manziel draft and the Justin Gilbert draft. Um, I do believe we got Joel Batonio in that draft. I, I could be wrong. But I do believe Joel Batonio did come out of that he, draft. But he the year before that, I'm not sure. uh, he may have been. I don't know. 2014 just seems like an unmitigated disaster to me. But that one was. Everybody that's out there. Drugs. That was the problem. But uh, the talent level, I think, was actually pretty high. Um, so, from a talent perspective, I think it was okay. Uh, it was just the chemical dependency issues that I had trouble with. But, Ah, but okay, well, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, offensive line in, in particular. I would like to talk about uh, some of the experiences that I had along with the other fans that attended the uh, summer camp that the Browns opened to the public last summer. And if you did, uh, you saw Bill Callahan and his assistants, including Joe Thomas, who acts as an assistant coach uh, during the summer when he's uh, not doing his broadcast duties, and uh, you saw the the uh, assistant coaches acting like martial arts instructors. So they actually put on pads, protective pads like boxing gloves, only they're more like the type So you're of saying they were kung fu fighting? Yes, that's exactly what they do. Were they fast as lightning? Pretty much. They were faster than you or me. Let's put that well, faster <laughs> than me. Maybe, maybe it was a little bit frightening. Yeah, yeah. I know you studied martial arts quite a bit. I, I also uh, practice martial arts. I wouldn't call myself a good martial artist, but I at least learned a lot about it while I was getting beat up by people that were better than me. Uh, but they they would uh, line up, and Joe Thomas would come by and just whack, 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 actually with an open palm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they would teach different ways to strike, and they would call they had different names for it, and they would shout out numbers which corresponded to different points on the opponent's body. And uh, they really did teach something that, to me, looked a lot like Wing Chun Kung Fu, for those who are familiar with different flavors of Kung Fu. Uh, and um, So, Elliot, let me ask you a question. Yes. What Kung Fu did you study? Well, I studied uh, Kenpo from... Uh, uh, Dan Dislehorse in Springfield, and then I moved down to Kettering and mm-hmm. studied under um, Manuel Taninko in Kettering. Shout out to uh, Master Taninko. I believe he is still active. Nice, nice. And, uh, then I also studied Taekwondo at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. 
and I'm familiar with uh, jujitsu and judo and a little bit. Is, of- is that typical, like rocket science training? Like, if in case the rocket falls over, do this kung fu move, and it will like stand back up. I've never heard of that. But <laughs> I think a lot of people that do uh, that are military sort of enjoy violence. Let's face it. <laughs> That's and, like Lyle Alzado. I'm in this for the violence, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, a lot of us do that sort of thing. So I had the chance of studying uh, Lai Tung Pai Kung Fu, which is a, a kind of hybrid of uh, Northern and Southern Shaolin Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so Northern Kung Fu being like open field, very focused on power, big steps, large strikes. Um, southern style Kung Fu uh, originated more in the cities of the Southern China. So you would uh, have to fight in an alley. So it was like fighting in a phone booth. Um, you know, Wing Chun comes out of that Southern style of Kung Fu. So it does make sense because offensive linemen tend to, uh, you know, fight in a phone booth, so to speak. It's about hand placement and hand fighting. So I could see the philosophies of Southern Kung Fu saying, hey, um, you know, let's strike it in the appropriate area, cripple the opponent, and therefore we don't have to get into this long, drawn-out you know, fight in an open field, which there weren't any at the time. So I could see that happening, but more to your thing. What, what else did you kind of see them doing in this camp? Well, yeah, the Browns definitely teach more hand techniques than um, most teams in the NFL. And according to coach Callahan, the Browns had the lowest rate of concussions on the offensive line than anybody else in the NFL. And I think that's a consequence of the way that they teach. Uh, I actually looked up in the sports literature and the scientific literature and found out uh, from an article that appeared in Perceptual and Motor Skills, uh, number 109, number one, um, published in 2009, where they measured the different kung fu strikes uh, scientifically using high-speed cameras. Uh, That was uh, done. Osmar Pinto Neto and alums, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, is entitled Force, Reaction Time, and Precision of Kung Fu Strikes. And what they say is that they can actually deliver more power with an open hand palm strike than with a uh, punch. So you actually get more force behind it. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Browns are teaching. They had different uh, palm strikes with one hand, with two hands, and kind of a scooping strike where they hit the opponent underneath the armpits and, and kind of lift them up. And right. I mean, as as someone who's done a lot of offensive line work, I think it's important when you talk about offensive line is that you talk about the grounding. And the thing was true for Kung Fu, right? To get force and energy, you have to ground. You have to settle. Um, you have to kind of flatten your feet into the ground, push off the ground, and then channel that energy through into the strike. That would be super effective. I mean, I played football for years, coached football for years, and when I started doing Lai Tung Pai Kung Fu, the first my first thought was, this is like offensive line play. You set up in a pass set, and the first thing you want to do is start hand fighting. Now, the history of offensive line play is kind of weird because, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and in some part of the 80s, the the way you block were these, like, arm shivers. Like, you, you kick your elbow, and you try to put your forearm into somebody and, and drive them like you're pushing a big block or something. Like down the street, you know, that's not what offensive line play is anymore. It's more of you have these bigger, faster, more athletic 
defensive lineman who can grab you anywhere, try to throw you to get to a quarterback or swim past you or rip past you to get to a quarterback. So as an offensive lineman, unless you can get the jump on them with the snap count, you're always playing in a kind of reactionary mode. So unless you've got the angle, you're playing, how do I keep them from getting their hand on me and how do I effectively strike them to get them into a position where they can't attack my quarterback or the running back. So a Kung Fu move, like a a palm strike is perfect because you're hitting with the bottom of your, your palm there. You're striking, you're grounding, you're, you're using your energy and your force to upset the balance. So that's, what's called heavy hands in football. Yeah. Well, I like that for, you know, even at the high school level, because you're teaching players to play football in a way that avoids head injuries. And I think that's very important. So that's, that's my message, I guess, for high school football coaches out there. I tell you, it's not new though. When I was in the um, early nineties in high school, we had a coach that was teaching us the, the very beginnings of hand fighting, you know, and we were light years ahead. I mean, I played uh, at Piqua high school and we were light years ahead of the people we played against. I and mean, we'd play some team and they'd come out with these forearm shivers. It was easy. You just slap it down, slap them to the side and you're off to go. You're off the races. Most of them weren't even on balance. They're coming down with their head down. They're off balance. You could just sidestep them and throw them and be on your way. You know, when, but when you start thinking about hand strikes, now you start thinking about your balance, the opponent's balance. How do you ground? How do you get an effective strike? And that's going to save you in your head because you're not thinking, I'm just going to use blunt force or drive. It's, it's more of how do I effectively attack with a, a hand strike or an arm strike to gain leverage? It, it's a different way of thinking. Yeah. Now, speaking of a different way of thinking, uh, what does this imply for the uh, wide zone or the future of the wide zone now that the Browns are going to have a full year with Deshaun Watson? So I am of the opinion that the Browns brought in Deshaun Watson because he is a franchise quarterback. Right, he is one of the top five, seven, ten quarterbacks in the NFL. Uh, presuming that he can get back into Deshaun Watson form, but <clears throat> you, when you bring a guy in like that and you pay him that much money, they are your offense. It's not the running back, it's not the wide receiver. The quarterback is your offense, and the teams that succeed consistently, you know, Cincinnati, Kansas City. Buffalo, those are your AFC teams, right? Um, they have great quarterback play. So the Browns going to have great quarterback play, and those teams run their offenses through their quarterbacks. So the Browns have this wide zone running offense. I'm not sure that's compatible. What do you think, Elliot? Well, there's not going to be a run-first offense this year, not in 2023. And some people may call me a hypocrite because I was saying we need to have a run first offense, we the Browns, that is, uh, in the in the past two or three years. But the reason is, is because we did not have Deshaun Watson. What we did have was two running backs in Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb that were capable of having lots of carries. But this season, there is no Kareem Hunt. Now, if you want to have a run-first offense this season, let's think about what that really means. 
there's going to be roughly in a 17 game season there's going to be something like 1100 uh offensive plays and if you want to have 50 percent of those be carries okay so that's going to be 550 run plays now do you want to have nick chubb actually run 550 times let's see he makes uh, not if you want him to play next season six yards per carry so we're going to have nick chubb and we want nick to run for 3300 yards this season uh plus we want him to probably catch the ball a few times let's say we're going to get 500 yards out of him receiving make me happy and we want 3,800 yards total offense out of Nick this year. Is that our plan? Is, is that how we're going to have a run-first offense with just Nick Chubb? I don't think that makes any sense. I think we better have a plan that's going to make extensive use of passing this year, and we're really going to have a problem if there is no Kareem Hunt to counterbalance Nick. We're going to have a problem of overworking Nick Chubb, even if we have a pass-happy offense Nick Chubb is going to have plenty of carries and uh, run first offense with one running back makes no sense. Yeah. Just ask the Tennessee Titans. Well, see how that's going for him. Yeah. The Tennessee Titans are mutants, but you know, the, the Derek. Henry, well, I mean, I would just say Derek Henry's on the, on the, the trade block. They're well, trying to move him. Yeah. But for two years uh, or so, they really did have a, an amazing number of carries with Derek Henry. He had more. Yeah, more, and they wore him out. Carries. I want to say this, that Nick Chubb had more yards per carry than Derrick Henry. Uh, Derrick Henry um, usually had more yards than Nick, but he also had a lot more carries. A he lot more carries. Four and a half <laughs> yards per carry and uh, you know a whole bunch more uh, carries and therefore had more yards. But Nick Chubb right. had phenomenal yards per carry and not that many carries because he was sharing the load with Kareem Hunt, and rightly so. I think that's what you really want to have, mm-hmm. is more than one talented player in the backfield, and, right? and hopefully have some passing yards to go along, or receiving yards to go along with the rushing yards. I believe that was the correct plan, and yeah. Brown executed it very well. Let's think of executing that. I mean, I, when I think of, like, the uh, the wide zone offense. I remember what Kyle Shanahan said when he was here with with uh, Mike Pettin, right? And they didn't have a quarterback. They had uh, I can't think Brian Hoyer out there, and uh, then they had some other people from the 2014 draft, and they came out and said you can minimize the effect of the quarterback on the game by running the wide zone offense. So the offense was designed to run the football because you didn't have a quarterback that could actually run it. So by run it, I mean like you didn't have a quarterback that could throw the, throw the ball all over the yard. So they devised a system in which you got players at the point of attack. So you could effectively run the football against six, seven, eight, nine player boxes because you had to, because your quarterback was bad. I don't think the Browns are at that spot anymore. At least theoretically, they shouldn't be for how much money they've paid. They should have a quarterback that can throw the football. So when we ask wide zone no more, I mean, I don't think wide zone is going to be the prominent position here it, because it doesn't need to be. You need to have your quarterback throwing the ball and winning by throwing the ball. And if you need to run some wide zone, great, but it is not going to be wide zone play action off wide zone 
rollouts off wide zone. It's not going to be the the offense runs through the wide zone. The offense is now going to run through the quarterback's arm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, here's let me just throw some numbers out at you. Is Nick Chubb is a great runner, and when he runs, he makes five point five yards per carry. In the second half, he makes over six yards per carry. But a good passing attack is going to make seven, maybe eight yards per pass attempt. So it's a better investment to throw in today's NFL. And even mm-hmm. if you, even if you don't make a completion, the uh, penalties tend to favor the offense. Pass interference is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Usually you're not going to get intercepted. The, the interception rate used to be very high in the NFL. Now it's very low. And the fumble rate is probably as high or higher than the interception rate. So passing is not a high-risk proposition anymore. So right, and if you get the quarterback to do it, then you're going to do it. If you have a quarterback, you should throw. Right. All right, guys, we got to uh... – since we make millions upon billions of dollars doing these podcasts and we come here out of the kindness of our hearts and we don't need your support or anybody else's support. But in the meantime, we're going to have a commercial break while we gather our thoughts. Think of this as halftime. And we're back. Hey, Elliot, let's uh, see if we have any more uh, emails from uh from our from our faithful listeners well we do um here's one uh, this is actually from outside the country this is pretty cool oh international listening yeah here's one from uh, plato from athens greece and he writes dear joel and elliot a dog when he sees a stranger is angry when he sees an acquaintance he welcomes him one is the known and the other is the unknown Thus, the dog is a lover of knowledge and is a true philosopher. So then, too, the dog pound are the truest lovers of knowledge. They intensely love those who are known among them and are intensely angered by those who intrude on their turf from the outside. The dog pound, then, consists of true philosophers. Hey, that's really pretty cool. You know, if they're true philosophers, then the, the Browns have to be the philosopher rulers. I would say so. That's absolutely true. Yeah, so philosopher corner for a second here. Plato, not necessarily this guy, because this guy is like alive and the real Plato is dead, but Plato the philosopher wrote this book called The Republic where he said the people who don't want to rule, namely the philosophers, because they're interested in knowledge and have no time for petty politics, those are the people who should actually be the rulers. And so the philosophers should be the rulers. And so if the dog powder are considered the true philosophers, then the Browns must be the philosopher rulers of the NFL. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I, I, I thought that Plato was one of those old guys rather than a modern uh, philosopher. But still, I'm, that's really very impressive. So, so dog pound, you guys are philosophers and we've got proof. So that, that's really pretty amazing. Um, let's see. I've got another one here. This is uh, this is Donald from uh, Mar-a-Lago, Florida, and he writes, "Hey guys, congratulations on your new show. This is going to be really huge, unless it's not. In which case, so sorry to hear about your latest disaster. Better luck next time. You should have listened to me. 
Oh, that guy's humble. Well, hmm. yeah. Kind of <laughs> no faith in us, man. Come on. I, well, he does have faith in us, but he also doesn't. So it's kind of contradictory. Have you have you heard from this guy, Donald? I mean, he's saying we should have listened to him. I mean, what is he? What advice has he offered us? Well, he's basically giving us both sides, both sides. So he's he's got to be right. He's just hedging his bets, I guess. But that sounds but, about right. Okay. Well, um, let's see. You got any more, Joel? I got one here from Giselle B. from Miami, Florida, and she writes, Hello, boys. So cool to learn about the podcast. And yes, I do need a new NFL team to root for. The Patriots and the Buccaneers are so last year's news. It is more fashionable to root for the underdog. Go Browns and Elliot. You are so cute. Well, thank you, Giselle. Sounds like you have an admirer there, Elliot. Oh, that, that's really pretty cool. Um, uh, unfortunately, I am already married, but nevertheless, it's always nice to have an admirer. So, yeah, and given that this is our first show, that's a heck of a listener right there. So, yeah, well, I am famous. So, I'm yeah, yeah rocket science, man. So, yeah. yeah. All right, on to our next topic here. So, Elliot, is there in this draft? a franchise quarterback. And I say this, I first should probably ask, what does it mean to be a franchise quarterback? Well, that's another one of those questions that it depends on who you ask. If you ask somebody that's technically oriented like me, I would probably answer it in this way. Uh, I want to have a number to measure it by. Uh, I would say that a franchise quarterback is somebody that is going to be at least top 10 and have a 10-year career. So you can measure it any way you want for somebody that's top 10 statistically, for somebody that uh, would be in the top 10 of the, let's say, the, the power rankings of the, the handicappers in the gambling community and stay there pretty consistently for a 10-year career. That would be kind of a franchise quarterback. Well, to answer that question, you're going to need like the uh, the the magic crystal ball here or something to see what goes on. I mean, you're going to have to avoid injuries. You're going to have to be accurate, consistently accurate. Take care of your body. There's a lot that goes on then to being a franchise quarterback. Well, of course, you have to make your projections, and on that basis, somebody like Andrew Luck was somebody that really did grade out, and you could predict that well i think he probably will wind up being that good and it turned out that his career was shorter than people expected but he did have some very good years um peyton manning turned out to be that good he had one of the highest impacts on the point spread of anybody i think his was like 12 points between him and curtis painter as his backup and as partly because manning was that good and curtis painter unfortunately had a very negative impact when he went into the lineup <laughs> on the other hand ryan leaf was taken in the same draft and he was the opposite so they're mm -hmm. not always correct but you know it's a probabilistic thing you pays your money and you takes your chances yeah i think that's a good way to approach the draft as a whole like right it, it's a it's a gamble right you're you're 
projecting and you're prospecting. That's why they call them prospects, right? You're kind of guessing how these players are going to play in the future. You know, is this person going to be able to hold up? Is this person going to work in that particular system? So is there a franchise quarterback? Maybe. I think there's some decent prospects at a franchise quarterback. But whether they pan out to be a franchise quarterback is a totally different question. Yeah, well, if, if you define it kind of the way that, that I've defined it as, let's say, top 10 for 10 years, what that means is that you can only have uh, about, uh, you know, just a few quarterbacks per year can be that good, you know. Uh, roughly, well, about one. You're going to have about one guy is going to be that good. Mm-hmm. And um, and there are whole drafts where they have all these quarterback classes and none of the quarterbacks are any good. Yeah. Entire drafts. But but you're usually going to have about five guys that are drafted in the first round, and they can't all be right. top ten for ten years in a row. That doesn't make any sense. You just right. do the math. You can't, you know, if that were true, then you'd have uh, you know, 10 times uh, five would be 50 top 10 quarterbacks. You can't right. have, how could there be 50 top 10 quarterbacks? It seems, it seems to me like if you're not picking the top three or four, you're not getting a guy that's going to make a long-term impact on your franchise. Well, I mean, there's exceptions. There are exceptions. There's Tom Brady. There's Russell Wilson. There's Lamar Jackson. But like. By and large, most of the high-impact quarterbacks come from top five picks. Well, you know, you, you can't really uh, generalize uh, quite like that because you know, you do know that there's also going to be outliers uh, that mm-hmm. you have to plan for. And you mentioned uh, uh, Brady, Dak uh, Prescott, guys like that. Uh, <clears throat> but, well, you know, what it says is that you're not going to – be rewarded most of the time when you're drafting these first round guys and you're placing expectations that this guy's going to be a franchise quarterback. There's, there's just not that many. So the, the strategy is flawed. The NFL teams cannot possibly be uh, all correct. They're, right. They must be wrong more often than they're right. And they are. And they are, but they do it. And I I think the Panthers are going to be wrong in this draft, and they're going to do it anyway. Well, that's what I think. If you listen, okay, (laughs) now I've talked from the standpoint of somebody that understands math and, you know, can multiply, add, subtract. A lot of the NFL general managers cannot do that. And uh, sports writers are even worse. You know, they talk about, oh, this (laughs) this quarterback has some kind of mystique, and he has some way that he can lead men and he can bond with the football and he can just really rise above it's like uh, baker mayfield coming out and yelling yee hee or something and everybody just follows he's the pied piper of oklahoma football isn't that what uh hugh jackson called him the pied piper of oklahoma football <laughs> i don't i don't remember that but yeah that's, that's oh yeah that was a, that was the thing yeah, well, yeah, so how many points is that going to allow him to score? But, uh, yeah, I, Bryce Young is a very good example of that. We talk about somebody that is a franchise quarterback is 
being a five tool player and he's got size and he's got speed and he's got uh, accuracy and he's got stats and he's got experience and he started for four years at a power five school and he did this and he did that. But uh, man, uh, Bryce Young is going to play in the NFL. We understand that, but he's not going to get any bigger. He's not going to get any taller. He's not all that fast. And um, uh, he has obvious deficiencies that would make you think, make me think that he's not going to be top 10 for 10 years. He's not going to be that franchise quarterback. He is not going to push the Las Vegas line, or I'm not supposed to say Las Vegas, but the gambling line, the betting line, he's not going to push it by six points for 10 years in a row. You know, I think if football could be played like seven-on-seven seven flag football, even if it was seven-on-seven seven in pads, right, Bryce Young would be the NFL quarterback because he, when he is left alone, can get his mechanics right, relax, deliver a perfect ball. Yes. The problem for problem for Bryce Young is that he plays in the NFL where the 400-pound guy lined up in front of you is faster, bigger, stronger than you are. And when you're weighing 190 pounds at 5'10", and you cannot run people, and they're wanting to rip your head off because, you know, if you play a team like the Steelers, they're literally going to try to rip your head off, you know. I, I just there's, there's problems coming, man. I mean, we are, we're not going to have to get into whole Bryce Young and all this stuff, but if you watch tape and you watch film, there's some real issues that I think you need to have some plans for. Um, but well, as as go ahead, yeah, I was going to say you can pl- there you can play quarterback in the NFL, but you're going to have to move the pocket sideways to get outside of the lineman. You can't just throw the ball through the linemen uh, or over them. You, you, you can't make up that height differential. So you have to move outside, either roll out right or roll out left and get away from them and then throw. And that, that changes the way that you play the position when you're short. And, mm-hmm. and, and the most effective way to be a quarterback is to sit in the pocket and throw the football. Yeah. And that's the most effective way to be a quarterback. And I think Bryce Young wants – read one and read two are gone, his mechanics in the pocket start falling apart. Like he starts bouncing, which he's not grounded. He starts bouncing. He likes to jump and throw the ball. He's got some real bad habits that you're going to have to correct, or you're going to have to say every single pass play is going to have two options. You look to A and then you look to B. And if A and B aren't there, you need to run for your life. Well, you're going to, as a minimum, you're going to lose a few seconds of pocket time um, because you have to move on every play. It's just going to be a different way to play quarterback. Yes, it can be done. No, I don't believe that you're going to uh, move the point spread consistently throughout your career uh, at that level. I just don't believe think I think Stroud has a chance to do it, but again... You know, he's going to have to learn to run. And I think, you know, Northwestern and Michigan kind of showed that, that he's going to have to learn how to run the football. Um, he likes to stand in the pocket or escape the pocket and still look to throw to the point where, like, he's throwing bad passes when he could have just ran 10 yards and he got a first down. He's trying to hit that 30 yard down the field, hanging on to the ball. So he's going to have to learn to get rid of the ball. But, Elliot, moving on here, what are your final thoughts here? Um, we still have another letter, I think. 
And um, anything you want to say as we wrap up? Uh, well, I do have a, one more letter that I'd like to uh, read. It's kind of an important one. Uh, Joe right. from Washington writes, thank you for informing me of your new podcast. Hopefully you will encourage your viewership to use solar electricity for the video equipment used to view your show in order to slow global warming. By the way, if your show fails, and it probably will, blame Congress, not my office, okay? Well, okay. Wow. Joe sounds like he's pretty important. He's got his own office. Well, yeah, yeah, he does. And uh, so, yeah, everybody use uh, solar power to watch our show from now on. And help save the world from global warming. I think that's a good sentiment. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I am kind of tired. I might go take a nap. <laughs> All right, Elliot, any final thoughts? Um. Well, I enjoyed this very much, Joel. I think we make a really good team. We have unique perspectives. I think our mission was accomplished. I hope the fans had a good time. Please uh, send us a line, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Yeah, we got some really good uh, comments, some really good uh, letters last time. hope we get some more. Um, I'll just say the, you know, the draft is coming up. We didn't do a whole lot with the draft except ask questions about uh, franchise quarterbacks, but... You know, with the draft coming up, enjoy the weekend. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Stay, I would say, stay sober because you're killing brain cells when you drink alcohol. But I'm not sure I'm going to follow that one personally. But have a good weekend. Have a good time. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Football Philosophy and Rocket Science, a Cleveland Browns podcast. Please like, subscribe, and tell all your friends to give a listen. You can follow Joel on Twitter at The Left Guard and Elliot at The Village Elliot.